This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Whakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. How was your weekend? Um, really relaxing, actually. Uh, I did pretty much nothing. I watched <laughs> a couple of movies and had a barbecue on Sunday, and that's it. <laughs> very strange, Sam, I have to say. Very strange indeed. You are in a strange place of waiting for results. Yep, I am, and um, and it's a but it's a happy place though because I know that whatever the results are, it's going to be pretty good. I think. And who are we introducing today? Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jenny Yant. Uh, Jenny is a senior lecturer in zoology at the University of Otago who studies bees and wasps, and there begins our theme. <laughs> Two in a row must be a theme, Sam. It might be challenging to fill out the rest of the week. We can oh, try. I can, I can help with that. Where are you, Jenny? Uh, so currently I am at my home in, uh, in Dunedin. And, um, yeah, just hanging out on this beautiful sunny day. And reading my book outside, came inside for this. And we are asking people how their bubble life was. And of course, now we're having to explain that we're talking to, let's start talking about last year's bubble life and then on to this year's bubble life. And now wherever it is we're going to next. So, how was your bubble life last year? You know, um, at the beginning, was a struggle only because we were in this weird, you know, when we, when we shifted to level two in the first, the first time, but we all kind of knew we were going to be shifting to level four. It's that period of not knowing that gets me so much anxiety. But as soon as we shifted straight into level four lockdown, I was fine because I knew exactly where I needed to be every day. Suddenly I didn't have to rush around and worry about where my meetings were, which part of the city I had to be in. They were all here. They were all in my home. Uh, I have three cats, so they kept me busy. We got into a few arguments. They started winning the arguments towards the end of (laughs) lockdown. Um, I have been so lucky. I moved into my house a couple of years ago. I bought my house a couple of years ago. So I've been um, gardening and just trans terraforming the yard. So, I just took a lot of time and just spent time just working in the garden and wishing I could get to a store and buy more plants, but that was okay. I did other, I did other small projects. Um, didn't get as much done as I thought I would by being shut down and locked in work-wise, 
but I read a lot of books. I reread books, watched a lot of movies. Yeah, it was, it was actually a kind of calming to be in lockdown at that time. On the day before we were locked down the first time, I rushed out and bought some varnish to re-varnish the windowsills. I didn't do it, of course. Now you've used the varnish on something else, and I really am looking at these windowsills thinking they, they really do need doing. But maybe that's part of that be kind, is being kind to yourself. Yeah, I spent so, I spent the day before we went into lockdown just running around getting supplies for the house too, whatever <laughs> I could do. So you were working during the lockdown as well? Yeah, so we um, we shifted all of our teaching online. And so it was it was kind of it was disturbing and distracting because it was different. But um, like I said, everything now I didn't have to worry about running around to places. It was all here. So luckily, at least last year, my Internet worked really well this year. Different story. But um, but last year, it, the Internet ran well. Everything that we did was was, you know, thought out. The other thing I really liked about it was we were really encouraged to um, exercise empathy with our students with regards to uh, late work or just, you know, reminding them where they could find mental health resources while they were online, reminding them that we're all kind of in the same, we're not in the same boat, but we're all, we're all dealing with this in our own way. And, and it felt good to kind of be that, you know, to be a person that could actually, instead of here are the rules and if you don't find them, you're out to instead be the person saying, here are the rules that we follow, but let me know if you need some, if you need something, you know, some kind of uh, um, consideration. And, uh, and that's something that I'm, I'm trying to carry with me. Yeah, I was going to say, what would it take for that to stick? Yeah, 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 exactly. It turns out it's actually a lot easier to be kind. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you were doing research at home as well? Well, fortunately, last year, okay, <laughs> fortunately, last year, the big project, um, we went into lockdown about four days before it was completed. And it was a it was a three month project. So we, we were okay there. Unfortunately, lockdown literally happened the day that two of my students were supposed to begin doing their research. But because we saw what was happening in the US with how quickly they went into lockdown, I spent the week before lockdown talking with my students about coming up with a plan B. What are we going to do if you can't do your research? What is your alternative? And everyone around me was like, no, 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 New Zealand isn't gonna go into a lockdown. We're not gonna do that. We're not like other countries. And I said, that would be great, but let's come up with an alternative plan. And so we shifted to lockdown and of course it was it was it was heartbreaking because you know my students that were going to start their research they they had been planning this for the entire year <laughs> to get started and and they had everything ready to go and then they had to stop and and because of the duration of lockdown there was no option to start after it was over with so instead um both of them got set up with a different project so they could collect data uh using um online material or using the literature to go through. So so what was happening then during the lockdown was I had some students who were analyzing the data from the big summer projects. I had other st students who were starting um, 
new projects using online using a novel resource um i had some i had one student who brought her ant colonies home with her and was and it was really great because she ended up seeing these really cool behaviors that she developed her research off of so we were able to be a little bit more creative because we we kind of planned for that worst case scenario but as i mentioned before being in that level two, being in that state of unknown causes me so much anxiety that I just kind of try to plan for all of these contingencies. Um, and so in, in that case, it ended up being a good thing, but it's not always the best thing to have so much anxiety about something you can't control. Let's take something that will address some anxiety then. Let's have REM shiny, happy people. Why this one? Yes. You know, um, so, okay, this is a bit, there's a bit of a story behind this that I've been wanting to share. When I was in high school, one of my friends loved Nirvana and she was one of the only people in our, in our high school that this was back when Nirvana, right before Kurt Cobain died. And, uh, and she was like one of the only people that loved Nirvana. And I was like, I want a band that I can love this much. And, and I liked, you know, um, Man on the Moon and and losing my religion, all these different REM songs, they kind of resonated with me. And then I realized one day that that was the band that sang Shiny Happy People, which is like the happiest song <laughs> that ever existed on the planet. And I decided that day that REM was going to be my band.
that's a good band to have as your band. Jenny, you were talking about the impact of the first lockdown on your students' research. When we came to lockdowns this year, were you prepared for that? Had you, had, had you designed research that was robust, lockdown resilient? You know, we were really lucky for the second lockdown because of the time of year that it happened. So when it happened the second this year, it was it was long after our field season. So because I study bees and wasps, I can only we only really do our research during the summer. So my student who studies ants has her ants inside of the uh, the building. So she still had permission to go in the building to to take care of her ants. But um, all of the all of the and 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 it also worked out that all of the research she was conducting, all of the data she was collecting from her ants. Uh, had been collected already. So she didn't have to run her research, but she was still able to take care of them. And we were just able, and, and everything else that she needed to do um, was kept on, could be kept on ice and she could run it after after the lockdown was over. All of my other students were were done. So what we did was to prepare for the second lockdown, we talked about making sure everybody had access to good internet, to um, a warm, dry housing, uh, which isn't always the case for my students. Um, and so when we would check in with each other during lockdown, that was usually the first question that I would always have with them is, are you warm? Are you, are you safe? Are you comfortable? Um, it took me, it, I mean, this time was a little different. It took me about, because we went into lockdown so quickly, it probably took me a week to get over the anxiety of the shift. And plus the fact that they kept, you know, moving the goalposts as to when we would get out of lockdown every three days, it was it was near impossible to plan. How are we going to have this field trip next weekend that we planned? Are we going to be able to meet in person next week? Um, so, so we all kind of, we all kind of came together and mostly just as, and so because all of our stuff, the data were collected and uh, everything that else that needed to be done could sit on ice and wait. We all just agreed, let's just let everything wait until uh, we can get out. And luckily, um, at level three, our department has things in place for students who need to do any any of that work where their organisms are sitting on ice, where they can come in and do that. So we would have had that option had we um, stayed in level three longer. So the summer field season, when does that start? Has it started? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we do is we have, currently we're running this big bumblebee project in a greenhouse. But for our research where uh, we, we grow our own flowers, which is actually the reason it's rare in, in bumblebee research is because it takes a lot of resources and a lot of time and somebody has to go out and check the flowers every single day. And um, so, but you know, why not? So that's what, so we've started that. My student Connell started that a few months ago with planting the seeds and he goes out every day and checks the flowers and waters them. And now he's got a team of students um, that are working with him uh, to help monitor the flowers. We hope to get the bees moving into the greenhouse in a week or two, and then we'll start our experiments and those will run for a couple months. I have another student who's studying the red admiral butterfly. And as soon as she gets her testing apparatus set up, she's basically looking at, um, so we know that the stinging net, we know that people hate stinging nettle, just like they hate wasps for some reason. Um, but the, the stinging nettle, especially the native one, is really important for the life cycle of the red admiral, the New Zealand native red admiral. And so she's looking at um, host, host uh, plant preferences 
and how larvae develop on these different types of nettle. So as soon as she gets her, she, so she's ready to get started now as well. If we were to move into level three, um, we should be okay with regards to continuing to collect data. Uh, level four will destroy everything that we've prepared for, <laughs> but uh, I don't think we're gonna go to level four. So um, yeah, so I've gotten myself calm over the fact that level three will be fine. And um, and so we've we've had those conversations, yep. So people studying wasps and so stinging nettles. We're ready to go, sun is shining, the insects are moving. People studying wasps and stinging nettles. People studying wasps and stinging nettles. Do they also take bits of Lego to walk on while they're doing it? You know what? There's a guy in our department who's stud who's studying bees and using Legos as well. So <laughs> I don't think they're walking on them yet, but I'm sure it's happened. <laughs> so what what drove you to what was behind you getting interested in bees and wasps and butterflies? You know, so growing up, um, my dad my dad had this insect collection from when he was in high school and it was just the weirdest thing because he, we would have to go look at the, we would have to go stare at the garage at night because there was a light on it and the moths were there and we'd have to collect moths and cool beetles. And, and then he'd put them in containers and put them in the freezer. And of course, so you didn't know if you had a tub of ice cream in the freezer or like a great big beetle in that tub. It was really a 50, 50. Um, and so I thought it was creepy and gross and I didn't like it very much, but, uh, but my dad loved it. Then I was, um, but I always, so growing up though, I always knew I wanted to study animal behavior and I got an opportunity to travel to Costa Rica for us, for a study abroad program over the summer for a ecology program. And while I was there, I tried to take advantage of, you know, when we did small projects, field projects, I tried to do things on birds because they were the only things I could see. The birds kept flying away and I couldn't identify them to save my life. I talked to somebody who studied large cats, like the, like the, um, the jaguars. And um, apparently if you want to study something cool like that, you basically have to resign yourself to studying footprints and poop. And I wanted to study an animal. <laughs> so uh, this one day while we were out there, we were taking the, we had to take this hike into the forest and I was out of shape. I was a smoker at the time. Like I didn't think I was going to make it through this 10 K hike to get, to get into the forest, uh, much less back out carrying all of my stuff on my, I'd never done that before. And uh, not only did I succeed and get a huge, amazing blister on my big toe, um, but I'm like, I don't want to, I want to try something different while I'm out here. I want to try something with a plant and maybe a pollinator. And so I found this little patch of flowers that were supposed to be pollinated by hummingbirds. And so I was able to just kind of sit in this patch, but it was overlooking the canopy of the, of the rainforest, which was just the most beautiful view. And as I sat there, hummingbirds never came to these flowers, but these black, big black bumblebees started coming to these flowers. And these bumblebees let me get real close, like, you know, centimeters away from them, as long as I held my breath. And I could see every single behavior that they did on these flowers. And better yet, when they were done feeding and left, they came back to me. I didn't have to run around and go find them. They were always coming back. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing. These animals are brilliant and beautiful and a adorable. And I want to do this. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and I, that's, that was the first time they ever called me the bee lady. And I came home and everyone's like, Oh, it's because your dad collects insects. I'm like, no, I thought, I still think it's weird. But then I ended up being the one that had insects in my freezer now, and nobody knows what's inside the containers. And, um, 
but yeah, and then I got an opportunity the year I came back to work with a professor in the department who studies wasps. And I thought, wasps, bees, they're the same thing, right? They are not the same thing. But while I was working with him, I, I gained an appreciation for wasps and, and just, and because, you know, very few people study them because they're wasps, uh, there was this whole field, uh, this opportunity in front of me to, to just learn more. Why did you have to hold your breath? Oh, that's a great question. So this was something that I didn't really realize I was doing until uh, right until I learned that I was doing it right. But wasps and bees and a lot of insects will use the carbon dioxide from your breath as a cue that there's a mammalian um, predator or, or disturbance nearby. And so a lot of, especially ground nesting bees and wasps, one of their main predators is the, are, are just our mammals that come by and just dig and, and eat them. The, the, even though they sting, the nest is just full of these larvae, these, which are just full of protein for them. So it's a huge cache of food for them. So if you're looking inside of a, of a wasp nest, the entrance hole, and you exhale, you'll all of a sudden, and this has happened to me a couple of times, uh, all of the wasps, all at once, they just dart out. And you know, like those cartoons where they make that arrow, the wasps make the arrow when they're chasing. They really do that in real life when they're all chasing you. It's like this big arrow coming at you and you just run. They go for your face. Anyways, and face stings are just the worst. So, uh, so you, so when you, so when I work with wasps and especially when I'm next to their nest, what my first step is make sure I hold my breath. And if I do have to exhale, I just turn my head to the side and blow out uh, and try to hold my hand in, I'm trying, in, my, in place so that um, the air doesn't reach in there. Um, so yeah, so holding my breath is really important when I'm really close to a bee. But the other thing I noticed that, that works really well with, keeping, with working with bees is I start to sing when I work with them. So if I'm doing something that has the potential to be very disturbing, like maybe I'm sticking my forceps in the nest and trying to grab bees to, to put little number tags on them. Um, I just kind of start singing. I also start speaking in Spanish because it, it calms me. And I think because I get calmer just singing, sometimes I sing, so I make up songs in Spanish, which is the coolest, but, um, and, and I am not that good at speaking Spanish. So, so it's not like the, the songs are very complex, but, um, but because I'm kind of distracting myself with this calm music and this calm, it helps, it kind of helps me with controlling my movements and not thinking too hard about what, you know, what I'm working with and what I'm doing. So, well, not that I don't want to think hard about what I'm doing, but overthinking it um, and getting sloppy and careless. And when I'm stressed or anxious, that's when I start to make mistakes. And so I realized also early on when I first started working with wasps, this was before I, I actually realized that I, I had um, anxiety that required some medication to help um, keep it calm, to keep it, you know, lower so I can manage it a bit better. Um, I realized that working with wasps forced me to be calm in a world where I was just constantly anxious and constantly on edge. If I was like that around the wasps, I would get stung and I would get <laughs> stung really bad. So as long as I was forcing myself to stay calm, I was okay. And so it just kind of became this very calming effect on me. Uh, working with them. I'm sorry, I can't even remember the question. I think it was about carbon blowing carbon dioxide on them, and I started talking about singing and anxiety. But that's there you go. perfect. So, if someone is being like, if you do accidentally disturb a wasp nest and the arrow forms and they come for you, 
other than like what can you do to protect yourself from being stung can you like what should you do so yeah so if you're the one they're targeting uh they're they're looking at you they, they've they've already targeted you uh so the best thing is to run and to get inside to a, a place that you can hide uh you could outrun them i almost outran them once but I made the mistake of turning around to see if they were still following me and they were right before I went inside the building that I was running to. Um, but uh, so, so running, however, if you are not the one that they're targeting, if you, if, uh, if you're just kind of standing by and you're just in the, in the area, my recommendation is just to stay still. So I've seen this happen a couple of times when the wasps have gone after me. Um, everybody around me, was fine. Nobody else was attacked. Uh, I was the one running around flailing, trying to get rid of them. Um, but I was one time, you know, locked in, stuck in my office where I was keeping the wasps and the wasps got out and started flying around and attacking me all over. And it was, it was a horrible experience. But my, the other student in the lab was calmly sitting at the computer, calmly stood up, walked to the closet, calmly put on a wasp suit, calmly caught them and and took care of everything so um if you're if you're the one who did the disturbing you should run if you're not you should slowly walk away and remove yourself from the situation that is good advice thank you and what if they're the ones doing yeah. the disturbing like if you're at a picnic should you flap should you sit still oh you know what i do oh absolutely what I like to do is um, I like to provide them a small piece of food on the side so that they have something to eat while while we're eating. So I learned this early on when I was um, I would always make uh, peanut butter and jam sandwiches uh, while I was studying them and they just loved the jam. So I had to sit there and like eat really fast and then they would come to my sandwich and then they would collect some jam and then fly to the nest and then I'd eat really fast and then they'd come and we'd have just have to share. And actually, um, if you what I learned from studying a lot of foraging wasps, once they learn where the food is, they're going to fly there. They're going to land, collect their food and fly away. It's going to be really fast and really deliberate. And so if they have a safe place with the foods that they want, something nice and rich and sugary, they're going to be attracted to come there and back. Now, the downside of that is that they're going to bring their friends. And so it, it could potentially, you know, build up to be a few more wasps than what you want. The thing that's really hard when they're when they're foraging around your picnic or your campsite is that they haven't quite figured out the right way to land because they're just they're smelling all of this good stuff in the air, but they don't know how to land to collect it so that they can fly off. And so they kind of just buzz around your head and that can be really disconcerting. All they're doing is looking for food. They're just looking for the source of the smell. And so if you can remain calm, they're not, if they're flying around your head, they're not looking to sting you. They're looking to eat. But when you start waving your hands around to swat them or to swish them away, um, a couple of things could happen. They, they could get aggressive, but more likely um, they could end up getting accidentally trapped in your clothing, or you might accidentally hit them in a way that you get the, their stinger stuck in you or something. So yeah, the best thing you can do if they're flying around you is to remain calm and just just let them collect whatever they want to collect and let them fly away. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favorite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanu, kia koutou, ko tāhua hau. Hope you're all having a best day, beautiful superstars, universes, and I really hope, wherever you are, and whatever's happening 
this journey on together has proven to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you and each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Know that for us all, maybe two years now has been such an intense and stressful time and this has meant we've had to learn so much so fast how to care for ourselves and each other in completely new ways, facing a completely new set of circumstances, causing us fear, anxiety, worry and stress. I know for me the connection to the living world is always my greatest comfort and my sense of relationship and connection to all life in an infinite web along which we are co-evolving really helps me to feel that I'm never alone, that I'm always surrounded by family. But today, I'm especially feeling appreciation for the presence of my close human family. I was very lucky to be raised by three friends. The power of love has always been very obvious to me as a result. I think in all families, there is this very beautiful, powerful, unconditional love. And in friendship, and in our relationships with others that we love and appreciate, we find that unconditional love there. And so... Last night we celebrated the birthday of my little brother who's now 22. Of course was at his birth and cut his cord and everything. Doesn't seem like so long ago. And I'm so happy for him seeing him grow up and he's become very skilled at carpentry and woodworking just like his mother and his grandfather. Just wonderful to see. And today I have my other mother Ginny helping me with the bird feeders, packs of boxes in the mansion and I'm so grateful. So I really hope for you, wherever these loving connections are coming from, however your found family has organised itself, however your whānau comes together and that unconditional love is present, I hope that it is there to support you now in your daily life on a practical basis. If you are further apart, like me and my mum in the UK, I hope that you can still feel that that love is always there. However far apart you are, whatever the distances are, that love is always there connecting you. And of course, we're so lucky to be able to feel this, to be able to feel love at a distance, but also to be able to feel the love that is within us at all times. Then we can take the time to really focus on those we love, what we love, all the things we love doing. Of course, our heart responds. We can really enjoy immersing ourselves. It's so sustaining. It's also wonderfully inspiring to see the generosity, the gratitude, the kindness that comes from those who love us. And if we can extend this kindness and generosity and gratitude further afield towards those we don't yet know, towards those we will be meeting, towards those we maybe have only met before, it's wonderful to see the changes that can take place and of how we're able to interact. And if we can even extend that love and gratitude and generosity, those kind and best wishes, further afield to people we'll never meet, who are farther away, who are somewhere we may never go, but who are experiencing, and we can send love to them, and we can wish the best for them. I think this can be very helpful at a time when we are worried about our human family. So of course for me, being part of this show is a huge comfort and a huge encouragement every day. So thank you Sam and the whole Blind Bubbles team for having me, and thank you to all of you for having and all the great contributions you're making, and I look forward to talking together soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Jenny Yount. 
Jenny, we've talked to several people on this show and on Sustainable Lens who are studying charismatic megafauna and to people who are dis- who are studying uncharismatic smaller fauna. Must be a better term than that. What are the big questions in terms of that social insect behaviour? Oh, boy. I can talk about the questions that I think are, are really important for, for social insects. We'll go that route instead. Um I think that understanding the ecology, the 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 plant, the the way in which um, other plants and animals are engaging in their environment is affecting the development of these colonies and the strength of these colonies is really important. So um, one of the things that happens is we all think when we think of social insects or we think of bees, we always think of honeybees, but honeybees are just one species that happened to spread. Uh, throughout the whole world because we brought them everywhere in the world. Whereas there are so many different species of native bees and bumblebees that are here important for agriculture. Um, We have the social wasps that were uh, introduced accidentally, um, but they also have an important ecological role, whether that's extremely bad or possibly good in some regions is unknown. Um, we, We do know that it's extremely bad in some regions, that's for sure. Uh, but there are just a whole variety of other wasps that are here too, besides the ones that get attention. So when we think about wasps and bees, we think honeybees and social wasps. We think really good and important for agriculture and really, really bad for ecology and agriculture. But in in essence, um, the 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 there's such a diversity of bees that we have here in New Zealand and all over the world that don't receive a lot of attention. And what I'm trying to, one of the things that we try to do with my research as well as with my home is I try to create these environments that can be more conducive to attracting the, this, this variety, this diversity of wasps and bees and flies and other things as well um, to not only attract them, but to kind of keep them here and to create this healthy landscape. What kinds of things can I plant in my yard? What kinds of, what kinds of, um, uh, combinations of flowers can we provide for them that would maximize their health and their um, and 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 their behavior? So that those are kind of some of the questions that I find really fascinating, and I see a lot of my colleagues around the world trying to study this question in a variety of different ways. Um, how does the landscape affect the development and the behavior of these organisms? And then alternatively, one of the questions that I think is really important is thinking about uh, if we if I just focus on the social wasps, the ones that everybody hates here, I'm not convinced yet that they're all bad. Um, I, I've, in other parts of the world where they're native, they are actually considered a beneficial organism because uh, they're predators of other insects. And so especially in agricultural regions, they can have enormous impact on pest species that are eating the crops. So that's kind of one of the questions that I want to, I'm trying to develop those questions here, which is a little bit more difficult because everybody's, uh, the focus here is on how to get rid of them. And I'm just trying to say, okay, well, we have them. Let's, let's try to quantify what their effects are in different regions. And so I'm trying to develop a few things that we can do uh, with that to link, to link those wasps with their, especially with agriculture, I think we could find something really interesting. What also happens is, um, and this is not something that I study, but it's something that a lot of other people study, and it's the reason I don't study it, is that we know that pesticides, fertilizers, any kind of chemicals we add to 
our 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 yards, our grounds, our agriculture is um, seeping through the soil, having an effect on um, ground underground terrestrial invertebrates, is having an effect on um, you know just the, the 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 nutrients coming into the trees and to the plants, of course, too. But all of those chemicals are having these are they're not going away. Uh, it's not like we're, we can pour some chemicals into the ground and then next year we say, oh, well, we need, you know, we, we have to keep pouring them in if we want to keep, keep them working the way we want, we, we expect them to, but the chemicals are persisting and we're discovering some, we, when I say we, what I mean is they, cause I, cause I actively do not study chemicals because so many people, I don't need to know that chemicals kill insects. Right. But, um, other people are finding these very just even subtle ways that tiny trace amounts of these chemicals that are left behind in the environment can have these additive effects on some of these organisms. So it's been frustrating growing this garden and avoiding using any kind of pesticides because and it drives other people crazy as well. When they see my yard, you know what kind of stuff you could add to the ground. <laughs> um, I do add a few fertilizers to a few of my plants just because they're my roses and some, and sometimes to my, my veggies, but um, I'll admit it, but I try, I try not to just because, you know, recognizing that the world has been so saturated with these different chemicals that are just changing the composition and having effects that we can't quantify on all levels. Like we know, we know how these, uh, these effects are, are, we know how these things are affecting honeybees, for example, because we have to, these chemicals won't be approved unless we know how they affect honeybees. But it turns out that they have different types, different levels of effects on bumblebees, solitary bees, ants, wasps, um, other terrestrial invertebrates. And there's just not enough money or time to do the tests that you need to do on all of these chemicals to see how they affect all of these other things. And then understanding how everything is kind of interwoven together, right? We need to have the healthy plants to have the healthy flying insects, but we also have to have healthy soil, to have healthy roots, to have the healthy plants. And so really pulling the fact that all of these things are inter, interrelated to one another is, is really important. It's really complicated to test scientifically, but I think it's um, a lot of people are now working together in different, in different areas and different disciplines to try to address some of these questions, which I think is really powerful and really cool. I'm going to squeeze in the second of your music choices, Audio Slave, Be Yourself. Why this one? Um, so a few years when Chris Cornell died, that was, so I talked about like how Nirvana was my friend's band, but I loved him too. And then I started really getting into um, bands like Nirvana, Foo Fighters, that type of music. And um, Soundgarden was one of my jams back in the day. And I remember when Chris Cornell died, uh, I was kind of looking for a way. I was like, it really affected me. It really, when, when famous people pass away, it, I, I'm like, okay, well, I didn't know them. And I certainly didn't know Chris Cornell, but um, I was trying to find the perfect lyric to capture how I felt when he left the world. And the one that resonated with me was the lyric from this song, which is, you know, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. All, all you can do is just be yourself. And I just think that that's such a important, heavy message to share and to carry around with oneself and so that's what that's what he left me with
talking about um, that being yourself, that authenticity. How do we get our kids to a place, do you reckon, that, you know, the young ones that are coming through into university, how do we get them to a place where they can let go of all those expectations that they bring with them um, that usually come from other people and just be their authentic self? I think that's such an important question and, and one that I think about a lot. One of the things I try to do when um, I hang out with my friend's kids is we just sit outside and stare at the tiny little worlds. I like to I like to focus on, again, the bees and the wasps with all the flies and just remind people that the world is bigger than what you see. Every, every crevice, every pocket of the tree in my backyard has a whole organ has a whole world inside of it to explore. Um, when I pull students in, when I start talking to students, I encourage them uh, to write stories, be creative, art, any kind of art that's if you're interested in, if you're a drawer or a thinker, or you know, just like to color or paint. All of those skills are so important to science. And sometimes as, as scientists, even we forget that because we're so we're so kind of clicked into this. We've got to, you know, find all of this, all of the the answers and the, and the information and publish and get money and do all of this stuff. And we're in it, too. But the reality is, is that the best science comes from stepping back, looking around and just kind of coming up with a creative solution. What if the bumblebee is actually, you know, doing something else or what if. The native bee is is more important for this type of, of pollination effort than the honeybee, but we just don't know it yet. Really kind of stepping outside of everything that we know to be true in the world and just thinking about the world slightly different is actually what makes a really good scientist. And so um, when I, I was meeting with some students at the International Science Festival and um, one of the parents came up and asked me, okay, well, he wants to be in science. What do you advise him to do? What classes should he take in high school? And she was thinking like biology, should he take this and this and this? And I looked at him and I said, do you like art classes? He said, yeah, I do. I'm like, then take art classes. Do you like literature? Do you like writing? Take those classes. Because I mean, I don't really know where most of my art organs are in my body, but I took an anatomy class, but I do know how to color in a heart in a, in a picture, right? And I do know how to look for bees and how to think differently about the world and how to appreciate the colors, but also how to recognize when the colors of some of my plants are slightly off, when they're a slightly different wrong color. What's happening there? When some of my bees develop and the color of their of their fur is a little bit lighter than, than when they're a little bit older, what's happening there? Just thinking about colors, thinking about, you know, all, just all kinds of aspects of the world. It's it's a, such a big natural world that we can play with and that we can think about. Um, and unfortunately, there's so much pressure on on grades for for scholarship and all kinds of other reasons, which is fine. But um, not having creativity and not having that artistic passion uh, um, reinforced and encouraged is is is. It, it, it loses something, especially in science. So that's one of the things that I usually try to do. That's awesome. One of my favorite quotes is Kerry Smith's, um, everything is interesting. And I, I think that that's a, a thing that I always say, and my family thinks I'm a bit nuts, is that I could happily spend my entire career studying the stuff that I could reach. If I'm sitting wherever, 
that, that yeah. I'll be quite happy to think, you know, this is so interesting. Why is the grass growing like that? Like I said, so they created this garden that I can just live in and I never want to leave. I just love being <laughs> here. There's always something else I can discover. I have some questions to end the show and not very much time to get through them. So we shall have to wiggle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, personally, it was buying a house. And professionally, it was graduating my first PhD student. Well done. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's the superpower that got you into the mansion? Passion. Enthusiasm. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Mm, passively, yes. Your American roots betraying you there. Americans don't like right. the term. <laughs> <laughs> so what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I really, I'm so fortunate to have the job and my career that I have, which allows me the freedoms to ask questions and just explore the world. So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Hmm. Um, that's a tough one because half of it has to do with traveling, but I don't know if we could travel. So, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, just publishing a lot of the work, a lot of the research that we have. I'm sitting on a lot of data right now. So I just need to get that put together in a way that I can share it with the uh, in the literature. I think that's my biggest goal. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? With regards to... Anything you like. It's the last question. It's a free Anything. Um, okay. Here's my advice. I talk a lot about planting a garden for bees and wasps, but the reality is, is I plant the garden for me. So I do a lot of research as to what types of plants are, are particularly good for bees and wasps to live in. And that's fine. But I also want a lot of color in my garden. And right now my garden is full of daisies and fuchsia and, and lavender and herbs that bloom and and everything and stuff is blooming at different times of the year and it's bringing me so much joy running around and finding bees on my flowers is pretty cool but i'm not going to kid myself i know that there are better flowers i could be putting in my garden if i was just planting it for the pollinators but i plant it for myself too so i encourage people if if you're planting a garden and you're worried about is this going to be good for the bees or not um, that's a cool thing that you're worried about. But if it's something that you look at at the garden center and you think that is such a brilliant flower, I wonder if it is good for bees. Just, just get that flower, put it in your garden because it's going to bring you so much joy. And that matters too. Thank you for that. Muira. That is such good advice. Um, I think it's amazing work that you're doing. Uh, any, any work that makes us look at the little creatures is just such a beautiful thing because we tend to just overlook them so often. And yet, gosh, what happens if we don't have them? None of us exist anymore. So the work that you do matters so much. Thank you for doing it. Thanks for inspiring all of your learners as well. And keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me for this today. This is fun. Thank you.
You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. Uh, this is The Who, Wasp Man. I'm Sammy Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Muira Karatai in Fakatani, and from Dunedin, not Wasp Man, but the Wasp Lady, we've been joined by Jenny Yant. But that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Stand. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.